For those of you who don't know, I am uh, Pastor Doug Hodges. I've had the opportunity to be up here a couple times for this series, and it has been a great pleasure and privilege for me. We will be in Mark chapter 2 today. Um, last week, Tim opened, uh, opened chapter 2 with the healing of the paralytic man, and throughout the week, we studied all the way through to verse 17 and the calling of Levi. And these two stories and the three that come after it complete a full set of stories that Mark is relaying to us about Jesus. And they center on uh, interactions of Jesus uh, in the midst of everyday life with those in Capernaum. And he, uh, as he's doing uh, his daily business, as he's meeting with different people, the authorities and religious leaders of the day are questioning his authority. And each story uh, brings escalation in the response from Jesus uh, and the hostility of the religious leaders and will ultimately culminate uh, with action being taken by the religious leaders against Jesus. You see, what Tim taught last week demonstrated Jesus' authority over sin and the natural world. And the second story that you looked at this week highlighted Jesus' mission to save those who needed saving, not just those who were already in his camp. He would not be idle in his redemptive actions and this highlights a major difference between himself and the scribes who appear to be more worried about the preserving of their ceremonially clean status instead of what was greater in port, which was reaching those who were far from God. And these two stories demonstrate that Jesus not only had authority to forgive sins by his words, but foreshadow that he would uh, at one time take action to bring reconciliation between sinners and God even in the case of a man like Levi, who was a willing participant in his sin. And so these first two accounts are more easily separated for the, the lives of the religious leaders, and the next three are not. Jesus is about to kind of get in their face. You see, the religious elite are about to have to come face to face with Jesus' correction regarding the way they approached their religious duty. So we're going to start in Mark 18, and we're going to read through verse 22, and it says this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot. So long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of untrunken cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And as I said uh, just a moment ago, Jesus is really about to br bring uh, the religious leaders of the day face to face with facts that are uncomfortable for them. You see, the first two accounts are really not all that terrible for the leaders. They could deal with someone who is making claims to be the Messiah. They had dealt with such things before, and they had no doubt in the mind that they would deal with them again. But what they couldn't deal with 
Uh, was Jesus uh, bringing correction to the way that they lived their lives? You see, uh, for the Jews of the day, for the religious leaders, Judaism had three essential pillars. They were prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. And Jesus will continually correct errors in the way of thinking uh, on these three practices. Jesus, if you think through the Gospels, you can't help but to think about times when he's corrected uh, misunderstandings about the giving of offering, uh, about prayer, and about fasting. He does it time and time again because these are essential to Jesus. They are essential uh, to understanding the heart of God. And so uh, when he confronts them on their fasting, or when he's confronted on their lack of fasting, uh, the religious leaders are now immediately drawn in because their authority was being challenged by Jesus not fasting. You see, at this point in Jewish history, uh, they fasted definitely on Yom Kippur, which was a, a big feast. But if you really one, to show that you loved God, you fasted twice a week. You fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And so uh, when someone is not fasting and everyone else is, it's very noticeable. If you go to a party and everyone's having a good time and one person isn't, it's pretty obvious. If you're sitting in a meeting and one person is really excited and everyone else is kind of like, that's a really, really bad idea it's noticeable that there's one person not like the other. And so when the disciples are, are walking with Jesus and they're, they're not fasting and everyone else is, people are taking notice. And so some of those who are gathered ask Jesus, why? Why are your disciples not fasting? Why are your disciples not being like us? And what he does is he responds brilliantly. You see, he rebuffs the idea that he was against fasting, which was really what lay under their question, by pointing out that his disciples would fast again, that they would absolutely fast again. But at this moment, it wasn't appropriate because everyone understood that fasting where feasting was the call was unacceptable. That fasting when you should be feasting made no sense. If you go to a buffet and say, I'm going to fast, it doesn't make any sense. Just stay home. There's no reason to fast when you're in the midst of a feast, especially when the, the feast is for celebrating the king himself. You see, Jesus is being provocative in his response to those who are asking the question because he's not just saying it's not appropriate to fast in this moment. He's saying, will you recognize who I am? That there is a reason to feast instead of fast that there is reason why you should be joining with me in the celebration. You see, because the people would have heard the messenger declare that Jesus was the king who had come to reconcile his people to himself, to bring his nation back to, in order, to bring a church into fruition. You see, the question wasn't, why aren't you fasting? The question should have been, why aren't you celebrating? 
And to help illustrate the point even further, Jesus gives what can be considered two micro parables. Two one-sentence parables, one about clothing and the other about wine, to illustrate his point. And in both instances, Jesus is pointing out that the new cloth and the new wine are of greater value than the old cloth and the old wineskin. He's saying that what he wants is what's new. What he wants is his new teaching on fasting, his new understanding of the kingdom of God. And he's saying, I'm bringing the understanding to you. I'm bringing a new teaching to you so that you can get straight what is really at the heart of God. And in using these two illustrations, he's not only saying that he's what's of value, but that he is not an attachment, an addition, an appendage to what is already happening in Israel. He couldn't be integrated into or contained by the pre-existing structures of Judaism, the Torah, or the synagogue. He was here to expand the kingdom of God. He was here to reveal the heart of God to all people. And Jesus was shifting the question for both his listeners then and readers today. And he's saying the question isn't, will you make room for Jesus in an already overfilled life? Instead, he's asking us to forsake business as usual and join the celebration. It's not about making room for him. It's about giving him everything. And it's in the reframing uh, that Jesus is offering freedom from expectations. He's not saying it's what others say you must do. It's not about that any longer. It's not about right actions with wrong motives. It's all about Jesus. It's about being with your Savior. It's about more than just trying to fix up your life with some patches of Jesus. All that will happen if you do this is you will reveal your need for Jesus even more greatly. When we look at this idea of trying to repair our lives with Jesus patches, uh, this, this illustration is perfect uh, because what he's saying is if you put new cloth on old cloth and you wash it, it shrinks. And the old cloth, which is already weak and messed up that you just tried to repair, is going to be torn even further. That there's no way for the, the new, uh, new cloth uh, to be able to uh, not shrink. It's what happens. We have pre-shrunk clothes now. That's great. They didn't. It didn't work for them. And then he gives this illustration and says, you can't just pour some of me into what you already have going on. If you do that, as, as the wine ferments and it starts to stretch out, uh, the wineskin is going to burst. It won't work. And if you're like me, you're probably still thinking, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I was like, God, what would this look like today? And I'm not a fan of NASCAR, but for whatever reason, God gave me this image of a race car. And what, what I, I know about NASCAR comes from a, a podcast I randomly stumbled upon. And they said, NASCAR is built on stock cars. And so you have cars that are, are meant to be just everyday, ordinary cars. That's why when you watch it, you see Toyota Camry or Ford Fusion or whatever other make or model of the car it might be. And he's saying it's like trying to take your old broken down Camry 
and putting a NASCAR engine inside of it. It'll work. It'll absolutely move forward, but it won't work the way it needs to work because you put that overpowered engine in your broken down car, it's going to reveal greater stresses. That engine is going to shake and rattle your car apart. It is going to destroy it. The thing that you thought would fix it won't because it's gonna reveal there needs more work. And what Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the NASCAR. You don't need the Camry. Drive what I'm giving you instead. You don't need the old wineskin. I'm giving you a new wineskin. You don't need the old cloth with some patches. You need a transformed cloth. You need a brand new shirt instead of what you've been wearing. I'm giving you something far greater. You see, when we just try and cover the holes of our life with the things that everyone can accept about Jesus, it will not work. Wherever Jesus is encountered, he brings about change. You cannot encounter the living God and not expect to be changed. And he's saying, nothing will stand in my way of bringing about my will. So when you try and patch me on your old broken life, it won't work. Grab on to the transformation that I'm offering instead. And so for those who are listening, they would have been left with three options as best I can tell. The first option you can keep trying on your own, trying to fit God into the leftover spaces, spending your time fasting when you should be feasting. Option two, walk away completely. Think that you can find something better than life with God. Spend our time looking for an option better than the wedding feast of the king. Good luck. There is no greater invitation than the one that comes from him. And then the third option, join the celebration. Experience freedom from all expectations. Feast with the king knowing you are united to the son. Because when he gives us these options and he says, you don't need an old wineskin, I'm giving you something brand new. He's saying, all the ways you thought you were gonna get close to me uh, don't matter. It's not about what you do. It's about who I am. It's never been about you. It's always been all about Jesus. Our right standing is never attained by our hard work. It is always by what was accomplished on the cross. And so Jesus is inviting us into a life full of freedom in which we will find the rhythms of fasting becoming natural, not forced. One where freedom from religiosity is found, whether that's self-imposed or heaped upon us by others, Jesus is offering freedom. He's saying, choose me, not yourself. So there is freedom from expectation because he has fulfilled everything that was already expected. We don't have to obtain it because he already has. And Jesus is gonna continue in this same thread as we pick up in verse 23. And it says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisee said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? 
In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And also, and he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And Mark's shifting of the topic from fasting to Sabbath over the next two stories is still, it's all flowing in the same direction. And in this story, what we see is Jesus and the disciples walking through a field, picking some heads of grain. Notice that they weren't out there harvesting. They were walking through the fields. They were enjoying what was there as they walked by. And the Pharisees are upset in this instance because best we can tell, they probably thought he was breaking two different laws of the Sabbath. The first was that he was walking through a field. I'm not sure if you've ever walked through an orchard, a vineyard, any sort of farm. It's pretty hard not to walk very far if you're going through the field. You can't just stop midway and you're there. You have to keep going through the field. And for the Jewish, uh, for the Sabbath law, you were only allowed to take 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. And I grew up in the country and there was a, a cherry orchard that me and my brother would walk too often. As we'd walk, we would pick some cherries and we thought that we might be doing something wrong until a farmer said, you're okay. Just don't harvest any. And so when I read this, I was like, oh, I get it. And then I thought, there's no way I could only walk 1,999 steps. I'm like halfway into the place and I've like hit my 10,000 steps for the day. It's a good time. I wasn't gonna stop just because uh, I, I might be in trouble. And so Jesus is walking in the middle of this field and he's picking grains and this too would have constituted work for the religious leaders. And so he's guilty of breaking the Sabbath law in their eyes on these two accounts. And it got me wondering, why in the world did they care this much about how many steps I took and whether or not picking grains off the heads of barley uh, was work or not. Because I think we're at a disadvantage because we don't understand it. We often only have a small understanding of what Sabbath was uh, in the life of the Jewish man or woman. You see, for them, Sabbath found its roots in the history of creation in the divine order of the universe. Their tradition held that Sabbath was an eternal sign and blessing of, from God of Israel's unique status among the nations of the world. It was a blessing to them to be able to take a day off. You see, they alone practiced the observance of Sabbath and valued the rest that God had given them. Further, Jewish tradition held that those who observed the Sabbath became partners with God in the creation of the world and in bringing salvation to the world by participating in the order he had established from the get-go. They valued this day highly. They wanted to make sure that it was set apart, that it was truly holy. But as, as often happens with people they started attaching significance to the wrong things. They started to make this day of rest 
and turned it into a day of labor to be protected, to keep its sanctity pure. And so Jesus, when confronted, gets his accusers to start thinking about a moment in history that they all would have been familiar with. This story of David uh, during his time in the desert being pursued by Saul was not unfamiliar to them. They knew this story well, where him and his men went into the temple and ate the bread that was meant only for priests. And Jesus, in doing this, points out that no one ever accused David of doing wrong, as they had seen that his actions were necessary. You see, Jesus is trying to get them to understand it wasn't the lesser of two evils that David had chosen, but the greater of two goods. He had two options, protect the customs of the temple or protect the very lives that God had given them. The choice is simple. It's not a matter of lesser evils, but of greater good. And so Jesus is, again, giving or drawing his audience's attention and to say, I'm like David in this way. It's not a matter of lesser evils, but of greater good. And by attaching himself to David, he's also giving his listeners another chance to recognize who he was. David was the precursor for the Messiah. He was the one who would be like the Messiah. David was a shadow of who was promised. And Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of that prophecy. I am the one who has cast that shadow upon David. When you thought you saw Messiah in him, you were seeing me. And so David was the one, or Jesus was the one that had fulfilled their great expectations. And so Jesus has started to shift for the hearers uh, what they had understood about Sabbath by claiming authority over it. He's saying that this day, which was made for honoring God, was his to rule over. In verse 27, he's claiming authority over the Sabbath. And he's saying, that day that you set aside for God, I'm the one who's over it. I'm the one who makes the rules about it. Recognize that that means I'm him. I am God. And he's claiming the title for himself. And he's saying, this old tradition that you have, this thing that you thought you've understood is not about just uh, checking a box saying, I completed the Sabbath this week. This is a day where the people were meant to pause from their busyness and spend time with God. It was meant to be a time of refreshing and renewal for the people, but they missed it. They exchanged a gift and made it into a goal. They took what should have been a great joy and turned it into a great labor. Because if I'm having to count my steps, I'm not thinking about my, my Savior. If I'm having to worry about whether or not I can make this food, I'm not thinking about the one who provided it for me. Every act of, of Sabbath law drew attention to the self instead of the one who it should have been on in God. And Jesus is saying, that's not what it's supposed to be about. And as we look at these two stories, here's what I really find most fascinating. I don't think we quite relate the way Jesus' hearers do. I don't think there's anyone in here who comes from a Jewish background, who practiced Judaism on a regular basis. And so we don't quite get it. 
You see, I think that Jesus' hearers in, in Mark 2 suffered from an attitude of legalism where they missed the heart of God, crying out for relationship, instead made it about all the things they had to do in order to be right before God. They made sure that they did the right thing, absolutely, but they never spent time with him. They had a thought that they could actually fulfill the law on their own if only they worked hard enough. We, on the other hand, suffer from the polar opposite. We suffer from antinomianism, which is just a really fancy biblical term for against the law. We suffer from lawlessness. We take what God has intended for our good and go the complete opposite direction. Instead of putting up any rules and regulations, we say, it's okay if you don't ever do any of these things. And Jesus doesn't affirm either attitude in either instance. You see, he says there will come a time when his disciples will fast. Matthew declares the same thing, that fasting would be expected. It just wasn't right now. It just wasn't at this moment that fasting needed to be uh, explored and understood in its fullness because the king was here. Enjoy your time with him. And he also affirms the Sabbath. We often take, we often take Jesus' fulfillment of the law and say, that's what they had to do. It's not for us. We take his fulfillment and say, it's complete. Jesus fulfilled, he never forsook. He never said, you don't have to live under the law. He said, you're free from its rules, its regulations, but its guidelines are still good. The 10 commandments weren't a bad idea. It's part of the moral law that we would go and be a part of the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, partake in the Sabbath because it's meant as a blessing for you. We, however, have made this blessing and I think we've turned it into a cruelty imposed upon us. We've taken the Sabbath, which was meant to be a blessing and turned it into a cruelty. How dare God make me take a day off how dare God make me pause and focus in on him? How dare he demand that I would give him a whole day? Doesn't he know that I'm busy? Doesn't he know I have things to be doing? I think this might be one of the only times we look at sin and call it hard work. We take what God has said is to be an act of obedience and said, I can disregard it. It makes no sense. You see, we were made to experience the Sabbath, to experience relationship with God. Because that's what this moment is really all about, is that as I am in relationship, as I take part in the Sabbath, all of a sudden, I'm able to experience a relationship with him. If you're married in here, I think this idea of spending time with the one who is in relationship with you makes a lot of sense. I'm young and oftentimes dumb in just about everything, but especially my relationships. And most often it's felt with my wife where oftentimes I'm busy doing the things I need to be doing and I'll go days without really having a true good conversation with her. 
Not out of spite or anger or me trying to be uh, mean, but because I'm, I'm busy accomplishing and doing. And so uh, our conversations are often, uh, hey, are the, the kids good? Did you feed them? Have they taken a bath? How are you? Oh, you're good? Okay, I'm going to go do this thing now. And I get caught up in the busyness. And when that happens, all of a sudden there will come a time when I'm like, man, I haven't talked to her. And nothing becomes more important than stopping. It's been amazing in the last couple of weeks that God has caught me up and he said, see what's happening right here as you're spending time with your wife and the, the joy you get from her? I desire the same thing from you. I want to spend time with you in the same way. Because when I stop making it about the things I have to accomplish with her and I start talking about where our hearts actually are, I'm drawn into greater relationship with her. I understand who she is just a little bit better. She understands the pressure that I'm feeling, the angst that I might have in my heart, the parts of me that I don't wanna reveal, but she needs to know. And God on the Sabbath gives us the opportunity to do the same thing. But we've made it about so many other things. We've made it about the goals that we can accomplish. We've made it about the moments where instead of having six days to work, I have seven. We've made it about uh, what I want instead of what he would want for me. And here's what I know is he wants us to spend time with him, but the expectation is lifted. It's not going to look the same for each and every one of us. Tim often tells our staff a story about how one of his pastors spent his Sabbath gardening. And thank goodness that's not the requirement because I would never have a Sabbath. I don't garden. I kill things in gardens. That's all I do. Uh, for uh, another friend of ours, uh, he would spend his Sabbath with time in nature. He would spend time walking with God, reflecting on the goodness of God as he watched the created world all around him. And what a great time. It was always spent doing something that would draw him closer to Christ. For me, and, and I'm not great at it, but Fridays I try and make my Sabbath. And oftentimes I'm making an excuse for me to be lazy, which it's not. It's meant for me to spend time with my creator. And here's how it often happens. I have two little boys. And as I reflect on who God has created them to be, I get to see God revealed greater and greater to me. I spend time pointing them to who God has created them to be, to say, be like him. You, these good things in your life, explore them. Know more about them, but know about them for who he is. That is what Sabbath looks like for me. Sabbath will look different for each and every one of us, but the elements are always the same. We stop the normalness of our day. If your Sabbath looks just like your Friday, you're doing it wrong. I'm just telling you, you're doing it wrong. Your Sabbath is meant to be a different type of day where you stop and you reflect on the goodness of your creator. They had made it about so many other things. They had made it about the goal of checking the box, not the gift that he had given them. And so we know that the gift is given, but oftentimes we forget that it's given to us freely. And Jesus addresses that very issue in Mark 3 as he continues. 
And it says another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal anyone on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill the man. You see, Jesus is saying, even on the Sabbath, you're meant to do good. He's bringing them back to this idea that it's not about the lesser evil. It's always been about the greater good. The greater good in this moment was to heal a man whose livelihood would have been otherwise jeopardized. There weren't too many jobs that you can do with one hand in this day and age. He was a man who would have been dependent upon other people. And God is saying, I'm offering you a greater and restored life. And he's foreshadowing for us the fullness of life that comes as he heals us. As he transforms us instead of, instead of giving us patches of himself. He's saying, take on the fullness of me instead of just a part of me. The way he was being provided for was great, but Jesus restoring his hand was far better. He was without a doubt not breaking Sabbath law by doing what was good. And the first question was for all the hearers. And the second question, to save a life or to kill, was speaking directly to the hearts of the Pharisees. He's saying, you're about to accuse me of doing something unlawful on the Sabbath. If you plot to go kill me, is that not work? Because as they go and they, they meet with the Herodians, what we need to understand is that the Pharisees and Herodians were opposite ends of the political spectrum. They were opposite ends of the religious spectrum. It would be like taking your far right and far left and saying, hey, let's get together. That's not a meeting that comes about easily. It absolutely required them to go work. And it was still the Sabbath. We haven't left this time frame. And so the Pharisees' hypocrisy is being stated right in this moment. You say that you're all about doing what is lawful on the Sabbath, but you've made it about other things. You've made it about keeping the law, not about a relationship. And so the question we then have to ask ourselves is this. Just as Jesus knew it would, his gift was being offered freely, but that it would cost him, will we accept it? Will we accept that we've made it about the wrong things and accept what he wants us, for us instead? Will we accept his free offer of grace and love and freedom from expectations? Will we experience the heart of God in a new way? We're getting ready to sing a song here in just a moment that declares what we oftentimes have made it about. And the verses are gonna be new, but there's a bridge in there that is, will absolutely be familiar. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Every day I will trust and believe, trust in something in his presence daily live. I can get to the last part. But here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Let the verses wash over you. Ask the question, 
what have I made it about? Have I made it about the heart of God or have I made it about myself? And when you get to that bridge, if you would dedicate yourself to fully surrendering, would you sing it out? I don't care who's around you. I don't normally sing out loud. And if you're like me, I'm gonna challenge you to sing it out. Declare that this is who you are today, that you are freely surrendering to him that you would uncover the heart of God afresh in your life. That's it. That's the heart of God. He calls us to repentance, to live with him completely and fully. And maybe for the first time you're saying, I wanna be a part of that. I wanna know his heart more fully. Maybe this is a recommitment Maybe this is a moment where you're saying, I'm gonna do it better. There will come a time when you won't do it right. There will be a day after perfect, that you'll be perfect until that one moment and all of a sudden it will all fall apart. And here's the good news. The heart of God doesn't say you're done. The heart of God is not just a one-time patch. It's a constant renewing of your life. It is freedom from expectations because he's fulfilled them. It's freedom from goals because he's given you a gift. It's a gift that was offered freely and it cost him everything. But he says, I give it willingly for you. Will you choose to live in it? Will you choose to accept the heart that I'm giving you? It's not about what you do. It's about who I am. Be in relationship with me. You mess it up today, try again the next moment. You mess it up next week, try again. You try and you try and you try because it is not about your trials. It is about his work on your behalf. When the father looks at us, he doesn't see you or I. He sees a perfect Jesus who says, I've got them covered. They're mine. The heart of God is not about making us just good people. The heart of God is about turning us into the very image of his son, that we would be transformed into the likeness of him. That that is why God works all things out for my good, not because he wants me to fast, he does. Not because he wants me to pray a certain number of times a day, not because he wants me to read my Bible X number of times, not because of anything I make it about, but because he wants me to look like his son. And all those things come naturally afterwards. That when I look like his son, I choose to fast because I want to be closer to him. I choose to rest because I want to glory in him. I choose to read because I want his heart to be revealed to me. I choose to pray because I want to know him more intimately and I want him to know me without any hesitation. The heart of God is not about what we make it. It's not about things, it's about a person. And his name is Jesus. Will you choose to know him? Because if you do, Here's what I could promise you. You will feel more alive than you ever have. There will be no stopping you. That if you live in his power instead of your own, that you do things for his glory instead of your own, that you work in his power instead of your own, he will do immeasurably more than you could think or imagine. That is the promise of scripture over and over again. 
that you are limiting yourself because you are choosing to do it by yourself. Live in him and see how he will expand the kingdom. Pour your new wine into a new wineskin and watch the gospel unfold in ways you can never imagine. It will stretch and go further than you could ever have believed. The heart of God is not about the things I do, but the person I worship. Choose to worship him. Choose to live for him. Stop making it about the goals and live in the freedom of the gift. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you for the gift of your son that you have given us a relationship that we could walk with you. That Lord, when we mess it up, you don't hold it against us. You say you can do better. I want you to try again, but you don't put us any further away. You draw us in closer. Father, you've given us the freedom to run to you when nothing else makes sense. Father, you've given us a relationship that is not a private wager that you are good, but a public risk saying you are worthy to be trust. Would we take that risk knowing that if we do, you will bring about your good, that we will be conformed and transformed to the very image of your son. Father, we thank you for our time of worship this morning. As we leave, would it not just stop here? Would we worship you all day long? Would we honor you with everything that we do today? Would that become the rhythm of our life to honor you? We pray all these things in your name. Amen.